<laughs> I wanted to begin this morning by greeting you with a title that I think um, Patrick did a fantastic job of laying out for you last week. And I've got two options. I could start by greeting you as, good morning, spiritual narcissists. But I thought I'd go with a different one. Good morning, citizens of heaven. That's a daunting title, isn't it? How you doing, citizens of heaven? And that's what Paul is working towards right now in the book of Philippians. He's getting to the place where he's like, I'm going I'm to lay it out for you. Man, we are going to be filled with joy and we're going to rejoice over what we, uh, the, the, the reality of that, that uh, journey we have been on, the reality that we didn't have peace with God and we, we couldn't get it on our own. And yet through Jesus Christ, we do have peace and a relationship with the creator of the universe. And as sweet as it is right now, it is going to get a whole lot better in the future. We rejoice in that and we're filled full with joy because of that. And as a result of that joy, Paul says, church, I want you to live in light of that joy. Church, I want you to live with your true identity in mind, that you are citizens of heaven. So what does a citizen of heaven live like? What does it look like? Let me start by telling you a little story about what it doesn't look like. In Mark chapter 10, we find the story of James and John, two of the disciples coming to Jesus, and they're like... Jesus, and Jesus says to them, what, what, what can I do for you? Well, we'd like, when you come into your kingdom, we would like the privilege of being able to sit on your left hand and on your right hand. And Jesus says, you sure about that? I don't think you know what you're asking, and that's not mine to grant anyway. You continue reading the passage, and what you find is the other ten disciples didn't know. James and John were going to ask that question, and it says, they get ticked. Like, hey, we wanted those seats. It's like, I don't know about you parents, you walk out to your car, shotgun. I mean, we've had battles in our backyard, and the car's on the other side of the fence, and there's children bleeding and screaming because they want to sit in the front seat. And basically, what James and John were trying to do is call a spiritual shotgun, and Jesus said, nope, that's not mine to give you. That's not living like a citizen of heaven. That's living like your spiritual ambition. It's about your personal ambition. It's about raising yourself up and making your name bigger than everybody else's. And Paul says, that is not spiritual, I'm sorry, that is not living like a citizen of heaven. Living like a citizen of heaven looks like this. And he starts for us in chapter 2, verse 1. Guys, if there's any encouragement in Jesus Christ, if there's any consolation of love, there's any fellowship with the Spirit, if there's any affection or mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. See, everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but for the interests of others. Let's we'll stop there. So what Paul 
says to the Philippian churches. Let me explain to you what it looks like to be a citizen of heaven and to live like a citizen of heaven. And and I've got to be honest, as you read Philippians, it appears that the church, for the most part, they get it. But what Paul has basically identified is there's, there's some seeds that have been planted that if they grow to full fruition, they're going to grow into this beast that's going to affect the ability of the Philippian church to live uh, accurately as citizens of heaven and to reflect the light of the gospel well to those around them. And so he says, let's dig those seeds out now before they start to grow. What I want you to do, Philippian church, is first I want you to reflect on what is certain. So I think we get thrown off when you read verse 1 with the ifs, those if statements. Listen, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship with the Spirit, if there's any affection of mercy, we get the idea that, okay, maybe there's a little doubt there, but it's a conditional clause that actually is stated with an anticipation of there being a positive response. So it's probably better translated as since or because So what Paul says is because there's encouragement in Christ, because there's consolation of love, because there's fellowship with the Spirit, because there's affection and mercy, it's confirmed, it's it's certain. So so because there's encouragement in Christ, now let me, I should have said this at the beginning, I apologize. So um, maybe you've picked up on it already. I'm doing these 11 verses in Philippians chapter 2. There is absolutely no way, shape, or form that I'm going to do this service well. Not because I haven't prepared, not because I haven't studied, not because I haven't practiced, but because this is overwhelming. Verse 1, I am going to attempt to get through verse 1 in four minutes. Verse 1 is at least two months of study. If there's any encouragement in Christ, stop. You got a few things you could say about that? There's a couple things we could, we could point out. Is there any reason for us to be encouraged in Jesus? Yes. Here's the big one. You're joined with Jesus Christ. You are in him. Paul talks about that. It's not I who live, but Jesus lives in me. God, right now, residing in you, united with you by faith. God himself. Wrap your head around that one. Figure that out, and then let me know you got it figured out so I can laugh at you. Everything that Jesus is, everything that Jesus has secured, everything that Jesus has promised, everything that Jesus will deliver comes to us through the reality that we abide in him and he in us. Any encouragement in that at all? Any at all? Going once. We get through Christmas, and it's like, Emmanuel, God with us. And we should celebrate that God showed up. But this is more than God just with us. This is God in us. So because of that encouragement, because the consolation of love, that consolation, that words mean the comfort of a trembling heart, who's your greater comforter in life? Who's your greatest comforter in life? Is it your wife? Is it your husband? Is it a friend? Is it a, a coworker? Is it an old teacher? Well, let me, let me tell you about the greater comforter. There is no greater love that has ever been witnessed than this. When a man lays down his life for his friends, 
And Jesus Christ laid down his life for you. And in love, he took it back up again so we could live forever in the comfort of his love. So because of the encouragement we have in Christ, because of the consolation of love, because of the fellowship with the Spirit, that that can be stated a number of different ways, because of keeping in step with the Spirit, because we're walking with the Spirit, because we're being led by the Spirit. The idea there that is, the, um, the, the word being used there is the idea behind um, two business partners shaking hands on a deal and, and moving forward, working in step on the same business venture. And what Paul says, that relationship between business partners as they they head into that venture, that is the same relationship you have with the very Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has sealed us into the family of God. The Holy Spirit has made us alive. The Holy Spirit will forever keep us But that's not it. I am guilty of this. Many are guilty of this. I think many here are guilty of this. To think we hear the great promise of the gospel and we think that it it, it culminates on the forgiveness of sin. The great promise of the gospel is so much more than that. The great promise of the gospel is that God gives us a gift of himself to live with us. So, So since there's encouragement in Christ and since there is comfort and consolation of love, since there is fellowship with the Spirit and since there is affection and mercy, the idea is tenderness and compassion. Picture a dad coming home from a long business trip and that ain't daddy kicking down the door because the kids have been disobedient. This is daddy who misses the kids and he walks in and his suitcase is just filled with trinkets and junk that mom is irritated he even bought. And that child knowing the promise of, God, of dad showing up and sharing his bounty with them, they come running to the front door because daddy's home. And they fall on his neck and they hold on to him with everything they have and he distributes what he has intended for them. And that's what God has for you. He intends to share with you a bounty like we've never seen before. And he longs to encourage your soul and your heart. So Paul says, if if these things are available for you, Philippians, and they are, then by all means, verse 2, make my joy complete. By thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. He says, listen, if these things are available to you, and they are, then fulfill my joy and live in unity with one another. But again, carry that, that daddy illustration again. When, when he says, make my joy complete, it's, it's the same thing as moms and dads, as your children grow older and begin to make choices on their own, and they're making choices that, that please you and glorify God. There's nothing sweeter. It fills you with great joy to see one of your children making a decision on their own to put themselves second and another person first. That make my joy complete as I look at you and watch you live in a way that is marked by unity 
It's thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. The picture is the band. Every different instrument that I could pick up and like make horrible noises with in the hands of somebody who knows what they're doing, when they pick up the instrument and they play the chord in concert with everyone else playing their part, if everything goes well, there's a beautiful noise that comes out. Now, it's important to know not every instrument plays the same note. Even better, not every person on this platform plays the same instrument. Because what Paul's not calling us to is uniformity. He's calling us to unity. And so, it's not difficult to see that here at Uniontown Bible Church. You look around this wonderful sanctuary space, and we don't dress alike. We don't do our hair alike. Okay, joke there. Okay, good. Okay, move along. We don't, we don't talk alike. We don't think alike. We don't cheer for the same teams, although you're invited to join me anytime. But to do all those things within a church, to, to make us completely uniform, there's a way that that works. That doesn't come from within. It doesn't come from the spirits working in our heart. That comes from an outside um, authority who's trying to press a mold upon you. That's not healthy. That's not biblical. Instead of greater picture of what it is that God is doing in his church. And I, and I love this picture in um, Ephesians Oh, two maybe. I can't remember exactly where it is in Ephesians. And there's some guys laughing at me right now because I should know. But, but there's a picture of the, the manifold beauty of the church. That manifold wisdom of God is displayed through the beauty of the church. And the idea of manifold wisdom is it's like a diamond. You look at every corner of it, every facet of it, and you can see the way the light reflects through it. And it just looks different from every angle. And what Paul's saying to the church is, listen, when you look at the church, what you see is this, this multicolored, just massively different, but beautiful in every vein picture. And it pictures God's incredible wisdom because outside of God, a group like this makes no sense. Honestly, we, we have nothing, I mean, we have a few things in common, like sort of where we live. Kind of, but even for Uniontown, that's not necessarily true. A couple other things in common, we maybe, but, but in reality, the, the, there's only one thing we truly hold in common, and that's Christ. And, 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 and what he's saying here is, is let's, let's live in unity, not uniformity. Let's, let's live in unity, and we do that by, by not allowing our disagreements to become the things that we focus on. Man, we have disagreements. I had a Bible study yesterday morning, and it was awesome. And in that room, there are people who are talking about um, different versions of theology, and, and many of us within that room hold different ideas and understandings of, of, of how God works. That's okay. That's okay. We don't let that disagreement become the, the forefront of everything we do. We let that disagreement become an opportunity for us to make fun of each other. Amen? Amen. That's what we do. To, to allow the disagreement to rise up to become something of, of first importance is the work of the devil. Because what he wants us to do is to focus and chase after all these other little rabbits, and, and he wants us to make a mountain out of the molehill. He wants our focus to be placed on something, on something other than what matters most. And Paul says, no. There may be things that are different within this church. There may be things that are different between you and another member of this church. So What? Oh, I'm sorry, I'll use the, the Apostle Paul's version. Care not for it. 
something that um, my wife and I have worked really hard at trying to remind each other of in parenting. It applies as well to um, living within community with other members of the church, and it's this. Somebody being different than you isn't sin. Being different than God, that's a problem. Being different than you isn't wrong. So when you find somebody who is different than you, what are you to do? What are you going to do? Are you going to avoid them? Are you going to take advantage of the, the new chair arrangement and switch seats? Are you going to park in the back because you know they park in the front? Will you simply move to a different church? Paul says, no, I want you to live in unity with them. That's hard. How do we do that? I'm glad you asked. Verse 3, he says, don't do anything out of selfish ambition. Do nothing out of conceit. But in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but for the interests of others. See, Paul says that he understands that the obstacle to unity isn't a difference of opinion. The greatest obstacle to unity is self-centeredness. So, so he says, get rid of selfishness. Stop seeking things for yourself. Stop that self-promoting spirit. Stop grasping for the accolades and ignoring the needs of other people around you. Get rid of conceit. Conceit is that empty glory. I think the King James uses the, the phrase vain glory. Get rid of that empty glory, the bragging for no reason. Get rid of, of, of the, the, the view of other people that they are less important than you. Instead, do the mathematical equation. That's what uh, consider others more important than you. That's a mathematical equation. And he says, instead, what I want you to do is add them up and subtract yourself down. Look out for the interests of other people. That's real humility, is to help other people get ahead. Be humble in your dealings with each other. One of, the, one of the things I want to make sure I deal with before I move on here it says, is uh, we have a false understanding of humility at times. We think humility is this, this claim of lowliness. It's the, no, no, please, no. Not me. I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody about somebody who loves everybody. Just, that's all. Please, not me. No, please. Please, no, no, no. Stop it. We love you, but you're a goof, right? That's not, what humility is, is not this, this false claim of lowliness. Humility is admitting that there is equal gifting, equal talents, equal ability, equal position, equal authority even, but being willing to let all of those things go to serve other people. So it's not this, this, this false presentation of, woe is me, I'm just a little old person. That's just a little old person. No offense, that's not what I meant. I meant little old me. <laughs> I already know who's going to come after me after the service on that one. <laughs> Stop laughing, Bill. <laughs> it, it's not that, uh, just set myself into the background. It's not that. It's understanding. No, God has given you gifts. God has given you talents. He's given you ability. He's given you responsibility that he hasn't given to other people. But he's given you those things not for you. He's given you those things for them. 
and you those things for them, and you those things for them, and I don't want to leave anybody out. That's why God's given you those things. That's humility. And, and Paul says that's the way we need to live within the body of Christ. That's how we live as citizens of heaven. It's denying the greatest idol of our lives, us, and adding up the numbers in the favor of other people so that we could serve them. Why? Why in the world would we do that? Well, because honestly, um, it's the right thing to do. And secondly, verse five, we're commanded to do it. It's that little kid thing. But dad, why? Because I told you so. And so verse five, we're told so. Adopt the same attitude as that of Jesus Christ. Let's continue reading. Verse six, who? Existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even, even to death on a cross. Why do this? Because we're commanded to adopt the same attitude that Jesus Christ had. We're commanded to look like him. But what does that look like? Well, Paul does simply just in those three verses you have one of the most theological texts written in the entire scripture that tells you who Jesus is. And, I, and I'm going to barely brush the surface. Jesus, who was existing in the form of God from before the world began, before the foundation of the world, Jesus is God. Jesus is co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father. John 1.1 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word is Jesus. He has coexisted with God for all of eternity. And, and nothing about Jesus Christ and His nature as God will ever be altered. He is, He was, and He'll ever be the existent, the pre-existent, and the ever-existent God. Existing in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Some versions at the end of that phrase say as something to be grasped. The King James says he thought it not robbery. It's an interesting word that is there, and the ideas behind that word are that the position and the power weren't something that Jesus was going to forcibly grab onto, or something that he would fight to hang onto. He wasn't going to exploit his position. He wasn't going to use his position, his nature, his existence as God for his own benefit. And maybe benefit's the wrong word, but I don't know another one to use. So, so <laughs> this is a weird question. What were the benefits of being God? Well, 
The benefits of being God are the things he didn't grasp onto, or as verse 7 says, the things he emptied himself of. Emptied, emptied himself of means he, he voluntarily laid them aside. So what are some of the things, and this is but a short list, I mean, what are some of the things that Jesus voluntarily laid aside? What are some of the things he emptied himself of? He, he emptied himself of the worship of heaven with all of the angelic beings and all of creation crying out to him in his pre-existent nature as God, he emptied himself of those things and instead he submitted to the misunderstandings, the denials, the disappointments, unbelief, and even hatred. He emptied himself of the worship of heaven. He emptied himself of his independent divine authority I mean, he remained equal with the Father. John 10 tells us, as Jesus is speaking, I and the Father are one. So, so he remained co-equal with God. <clears throat> but he emptied himself of his independent divine authority. He became dependent upon the Father's authority uh, to, to help guide him and direct him. And you think about that most vividly when he's in the garden. Father, if there's another way, but not my will, yours that was Jesus' own authority. And he willingly emptied himself of that. He willingly emptied himself of his eternal riches. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich for your sake, he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. He gave up all of his heavenly wealth, the wealth of all the adoration, the wealth of all eternity, he gave that all up and emptied himself. He emptied himself of the voluntary exercise of some of his divine attributes. Now, this one I gotta explain a little bit. Jesus did not stop being God. Jesus didn't stop being omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent when he was walking the earth. But he used those attributes selectively. So that's why as you read through the gospel accounts, you can see Jesus sitting at the well and the woman coming to draw water at a much later time than everybody else because she is one of those women and she didn't want to come into contact with anybody else at that time. And so she's drawing water and Jesus engages her in conversation. And in the middle of the conversation, he says, well, why don't you go get your husband and bring him back here? And she says, well, I, I, I don't have a husband and Jesus is just amazing at engaging people and says, yeah, you do well in saying you don't have a husband. You've had five, and the dude you're living with, he ain't your husband either. The shock that came over the woman at that moment is seen in what she tells her townspeople, her, her neighbors about who Jesus is. This is the one. He's got to be. He knew everything about me. See, he's still omniscient. He just uses it selectively. He's still omniscient. You can see that, um, or, or I'll say omnipresent and omnipotent. You can see that in um, John chapter 4, when a, a man, of one of the royal officials, comes to Jesus. His son is sick unto death, and he comes to Jesus and says, would you see, just heal my boy? And, and you don't even need to come to my house. You just say the word, and I, I, he's going to be healed. I know it. And in that very instant, the boy is healed and Jesus never even steps foot in the town. Forget the home. You see, Jesus knows what certain accusers are thinking before their thoughts even become words. 
So, so, so he's proved that he is God. He didn't stop being God. He's still omniscient. He's still omnipresent. He's still omnipotent. All those things are still there. He just uses them selectively, which is why he can say, uh, I don't know the day or the hour of the second coming. Only the Father does. He emptied himself of the use of his attributes that, that lay all around him, much like a master mechanic who would work on the vehicle and just decide, I'm going to do it the old school way. I'm not going to use all these new fancy tools. I'll just use these old school ones that my daddy used to have. See, they were still within his reach. He just chose not to use them. He laid aside his prerogative. And when he emptied himself, he, he then assumed the form of a servant, and he took upon himself the likeness of humanity. Look, 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 at the, look at the dissension of Jesus. Look at the humiliation of Jesus from eternally co-equal with the Father. Equal in worship received, in authority, in wealth, and in attributes. From before time ever began, being born in a manger. He he took upon himself our suffering, our powerlessness, our humiliation, our weaknesses, our small stature. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. I mean, look at the humiliation just continues. The, The Lord of life chooses to empty himself of life to release it in order to serve other people, even to death on a cross. Well, what is he doing? He's looking out not only for his own interests, but for the interests of others. Paul says, citizens of heaven, live like a citizen of heaven. Live like Jesus is first in your priorities and start by being humble. Now, now Paul doesn't just say you should be humble. He's saying, remember, remember, as, you, as I'm challenging you to be humble, remember that, 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 that God is humble. And you don't have a God who throws his weight around. You have a God who humbles himself and he comes to you. He meets you in your darkness and in your weakness. He gives up what is rightfully his to serve you in your lostness. Why? Because you so desperately need him to. He talks about how he came, but he didn't come to be served. He came to serve. Is Jesus Christ serving you? There's a twist on a thought, isn't there? Is he serving you? Because if he's not, then, then you're giving this a go on your own, and it's going to end really, really badly. The reason Jesus would empty himself and come and become obedient to death, even death on the cross, is because you, without Christ, are lost in your sin, and there's absolutely nothing you can do about it yourself. But in Jesus, who came and lived the life that you and I could never live, a life of perfection, a life of total fulfillment of the Old Testament law, 
and then died in the place that you and I should have died. And took the nails that should have driven through your wrists and your feet. Wore the crown that should have been placed on your head. And breathed a last gasp of air that should have been your last gasp of air. And he did that not just so that you could feel special. He did that because a demonstration of his deity is grace, mercy, and love. So he took the wrath for our sin. He, he bore the wrath for our sin on that cross. He suffered the curse of the law, which Romans 6 tells us is death itself, so that any who would trust him would have their sins covered by his blood. Is he serving you? So we come to a place right now, and I, it's okay. We come to a place right now. At this moment, 10.02 a.m., February 10th, 2019, you are being asked if Jesus is serving you. And the next question is this, what are you going to do with Jesus? See, someday, you're going to stand in his presence. And if you don't humbly admit that you're a sinner and that you need a savior, and that Jesus Christ is that savior who died in your place, then friend, when you see him face to face, it is not going to be marked by a celebration. What are you going to do with Jesus? Jesus left all of heaven behind so he could serve us. And so Paul says, listen, if, if, if Jesus was humble, then by all means, you should be humble. But what I love about Paul is it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop with simply Jesus being our great example. Paul does what Paul does. He always does this. And actually, for a preacher, it's great and horrible all at the same time because it gives you so much more that you have to jump into. And so, so I can't neglect this. Paul takes this, this logical argument. Philippians, I want you to live like citizens of heaven. And what that looks like is, is, is being marked by unity. And the way you live in unity is you be humble with one another. Now look at Jesus. Look how humble he was. Pattern your life after Jesus. That, that's what a citizen of heaven looks like. And then that logical, logical argument, that logical explanation, he gets completely lost. I mean... <laughs> I do chase rabbit trails. Patrick said he wouldn't last week. He's a liar. <laughs> Paul, every time he opens his mouth about the great news of salvation and Jesus seems to chase a rabbit trail. So, so hear his rabbit trail. And let me go back to verse five so that you can hear it developing and where it goes. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God is something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, and when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. For this reason, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Maybe I read a little something into it. Maybe you walk through that. It doesn't stop there. His theology becomes doxology. 
The theology doesn't terminate on wisdom. It brings him to a place that explodes into worship. He says, you consider what Jesus Christ did for us. Because of what he did, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every other name. Well, what's that name? There's a lot of discussion out there. What's that name? Is that name, I mean, is that Yahweh? Is that what's tattooed on his leg when he comes in Revelation? Is it, is it just the name Jesus? I mean, well, he, he doesn't say here. He says in a minute, I believe, but he doesn't say here. It's, it's coming, so just bear with me. He says, so, so God has exalted him so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. You've got both physical and verbal uh, acclamation of who Jesus is. And then he throws out this phrase that has confused a ton of people. I'm going to super simplify it for you. He says, all of these people will, will bow and will confess. They're in heaven, they're on earth, and they're under the earth. Okay, you want the super simple version? Tell me where somebody else might possibly exist. It's called an inclusio. An inclusio, think about um, parenthesis, think about the, the brackets, and he says, bam, bam. Can you think of anything else? That possibly exists? No. So what that means, and at this moment, there's going to be a time when angels and demons, glorified saints, rebels, redeemed people who are already cast into hell are going to bow their knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's not just victory. It's not just triumph. This is the crowning moment of all of history when all of creation will acknowledge what we seek to confess in our times together here on Sunday as we sing, as we preach, as we give, as we pray, that Jesus is master, that he's the ruler, that he's Lord. A gaze at Jesus will not just give you a good example. It will give you a heart it longs to worship. Try to comprehend, as Paul did in Philippians 2, the route that Jesus took from glory before the world began to humiliation as a baby born in a manger. Born. <laughs> I, I, I can't explain the glory that existed in Jesus' presence from before time began. It, 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 it's, it's impossible for us to comprehend. And he goes from that being born in a manger, born into poverty, to a peasant woman, grows up in a carpenter's home. Jesus, Jesus never went to college. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place he was born. I mean, you think about this, this man, Jesus, as a baby, he terrified a king. As a child, he, he stumped theologians. As a man, he ruled over nature by hushing the wind and the waves and walking on the water. He healed multitudes with no medicine. He never wrote a book about it, never made a dime on it. And the opinions about him turned violent. One of his friends betrayed him. One of his friends denied him. And the rest of his friends ran away. He was arrested and he was beaten. He was scourged. He was tortured. 
He was mocked, spit upon, he was slapped. He was paraded through the streets and then nailed to a cross between two thieves. And while dying, they couldn't even give him dignity. At his feet, they gambled for his one article of clothing. When he was dead, they they took Jesus, the one whom had indescribable glory from before time began. They put him in a tomb that they borrowed from somebody. Now 2,000 years has passed. Scientists and philosophers, kings and generals, theologians are all dead and gone and their names are nothing but, but dusty books in libraries. But the name of Jesus abounds more and more because his story didn't end with a borrowed tomb. In fact, his story still hasn't ended yet. His enemies couldn't destroy him. The grave couldn't hold him. Death couldn't defeat him. Sin didn't stand a chance against him. His humiliation was a permanent thing. A brief moment for him that's resulted in eternity for those of us who are in him. And so now Jesus stands in the throne room of God, proclaimed of God, acknowledged by angels, adored by saints, and feared by demons, because he is the Messiah, he is the King of kings, he is the Lord of lords, he is the Savior of the world. And people all over the world this morning, Jakarta, New Delhi, Rio de Janeiro, Toronto, Brussels, Frankfurt, Havana, uh, Santo Domingo, Union Bridge, are worshiping him. And that pales in comparison that will happen, well, to what will happen on that great day when every knee bows and every tongue confesses to the great name of Jesus Christ. He alone is Lord. So may our hearts sing his praise and may God hurry the day when every knee bows and every tongue confesses. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, I'm, I'm actually sad. <laughs> because there are no words that can properly paint who you are. There's no words of any man, any preacher, past or present. No words, and, and understand how I say this, Lord, no, no words even in Scripture really paints the magnitude, or even the horror, God of heaven stripping himself of the rights and attributes of his glory, coming to earth in poverty to be the Savior of humanity. Lord, I pray that in some small way this morning that, that your spirit would crack our hearts open and that, Father, each of us would leave here seeing 
knowing and understanding what it is that Christ did for us just a little better. For it's in his great name I pray. Amen.